Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 29. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmern Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although sometimes we stretch into the 1930s, which we're going to do some stretching this week. And unfortunately this week was going to be the week that the prodigal son returned, but my daughter-in-law, uh, in a much more serious note, has a serious family health situation going on. She doesn't, but a member of her immediate family does. And they're up here in St. Louis getting treatment, and Caleb needs to be there to support for that. So he plans on being with us for the next episode. But, as I have promised at the last time we met, I am joined in our new million-dollar studio by my partner in crime. This is a winging episode, and we're wingers from way back. <laughs> the grandson of one half of the world women's tag team champions, the dangerous Dewey's Dames of Delta, Dangerous Dan Zimmerman is back in the studio. Thank you for having me again. Uh, this is a lovely studio. I love what you've done with the place. I'll tell you, this is the most comfortable chair I've ever had to do the <laughs> podcast in. <laughs> so in, in this episode, we're actually going to review... Uh, match from 1930 between Jim Londis and Dick Schickett. And we're also going to review a wrestling match between the Iron Sheik and Mark Lewin from 1976. Actually, you call that a wrestling match? I call it a street fight. Well, a street fight, a brawl. <laughs> I don't think there was one wrestling move done in that whole no, match. <laughs> no. Lots of use of the pencil. Yeah. <laughs> and in a very unconventional way. Um, and so, but the main uh, topic for this episode, I, I'm actually going to talk about Jim Londis because when it comes to professional wrestling, he was a bit of a late bloomer. Mm-hmm. And so we'll get into his career a bit. But for an update, uh, Wayfarer in a Foreign Land was released on July 17th, 2023. That's a new book on Sorokichi Matsuda, the first Japanese professional wrestler in America. Right now, I'm taking a month off to wring my brain out, as the great Ernie Ladd would say. And I'm catching up on blog posts, and I'm also doing a little bit of research for my last St. Louis history book, which I have no idea when that's going to come out. And a lot of the reason for that is this last St. Louis history book is a passion project of mine. It's something I want to finish, and it's research I want to get out into the world about Chief William Desmond who was the St. Louis Chief of Detectives between nine, between 1890 and 1907. And he was responsible for the policing of the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, hmm. besides all his exploits as a detective. He was responsible for catching, or he was one of the people responsible for catching uh, E.E. E. Holmes, the first serial killer in America. Hmm. And he did that because he developed relationships with a lot of the criminals that he arrested and interviewed and because of those relationships they actually sought him out when they had information on Holmes. 
So that book will come out at some point in time, but I don't want it to interfere with what I think most readers and most listeners to this podcast are interested in, and that is the combat sports history, particularly professional wrestling of the almost legitimate era. And um, I have done one book on bare-knuckle boxing, and I have at least one more boxing book that I intend to write. We have time for a very short rant. Absolutely. Go right ahead. We've got all the time in the world. I don't have nothing to do tomorrow. The the bare-knuckle boxing thing is what uh, reminded me. Mm -hmm. So there is a gentleman in England. Let me pull his information up on his book because I highly recommend it. His name is Tony G. And he wrote a book on bare-knuckle prize fighting in England called Up to the Scratch. And it is like an encyclopedic coverage of bare-knuckle boxing in England. And I highly recommend this book. And I had read it a few years ago. And Tony was re- is, is, not was, is researching a book right now. And some of the bare-knuckle uh, boxers, because a lot of bare-knuckle boxers, a round ended if you could throw somebody. Mm-hmm. So some of the bare-knuckle boxers were as good as wrestlers as a professional wrestler was. And some oh. did cross over into pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. And he was writing to ask me a couple questions. But, and this is what I'm trying to say, Gmail, get your act together. Mm. He will write like three or four emails. Mm-hmm. And on like the fourth email, the thread will finally come through on Gmail. It's not in my spam folder. It's not anywhere else that I can find. It's like it's lost out in the, Gmail verse. Yeah. And it will finally come through my email after he's written me like three or four emails. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, he just keeps sending them to me so he makes sure they get there. It's like Yahoo is now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess they're trying to steal something from them. Yet, there is this spam email list that I'm on for jobs. Uh-huh. I was looking for a job last year, so I, it must have got on one of these lists at some point. Oh, job case or Indeed or yes, something like but that. It's, but it's neither one of them. It's mm-hmm. some book clown I've never heard of before. And if I keep getting these emails, I have unsubscribed from the list. I still get them. I have marked them as spam and reported them in Google, and I'm still getting them. Oh, gosh. So if I keep getting these things, I'm just going to go to the government body in charge of dipsticks who can't get the message about sending spam emails. Yeah. But I get these every day. Oh, wow. The email from Tony, he has to send me four before I get one. And these idiots are sending you one. Yes, one a day. After you've unsubscribed and everything. Unsubscribed, marked through spam, it still comes through. So, Gmail, get your act together. So, you, you ready to jump into the main content? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay. So, I shared the match with... There were a lot of shoots that were on video at one time, so... The first, or not the first, the second Gotch versus Hackenschmidt mm-hmm. uh, match in 1911 was on film at one time. Okay. Most of the, there's a few pictures, still pictures running around out there. Most of those are fr- those are fr- still frames from that movie. Oh, okay. The shot of it. There was video of the Stecker versus Lewis match in 1928 to settle the promotional oh, that, war. That was that was a great match. There was video footage of Stecker. These were works, these Mm -hmm. next two I'm talking about. 
Stecker versus Zabisco to finish the double cross, mm-hmm. and Lewis pinning Munn to take back his version of the world title because right. of the double cross. Mm-hmm. The Munn Zabisco uh, double cross does not exist on video. Oh, that's a shame. However, there is one video that exists that we're going to review in the future. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched it in a while, but it's it's not long because the match itself is like 14 minutes. It's like maybe three to five minutes. Mm-hmm. But it's actually at when he shot on Dan O'Mahony. Oh, okay. Went into business for himself and took the world title. Oh. So that's one of the few shoots that really exists. So... And we'll get into Londis in just a second. The, yeah. re- the reason I bring that up is there's lots of films of Londis from the 30s, but these are all, all works. Yeah. Um, they look like contests, mm-hmm. and they were capable of fooling most people because they do, and, and both of the hook, both Londis and Shikat were hookers, skilled submission wrestlers. Mm-hmm. Londis was not on Shikat's level. Londis was not on... John Tigerman Pesek's level. He wasn't on Ed Strangler Lewis's level, but he was a hooker. He did he did learn wrestling in the carnival. Well, you know, and the th- the thing that got me is when I first viewed this match from 1930 in Madison Square Garden, you know, a, a big audience. I was fooled until I talked to you the other day about it, and you said, "Well, it looked like a real match, didn't it?" I didn't know it was a shoot. So yeah, yeah, it was it a was, work. I mean, a work, yeah. Yep. I didn't know it was a work. I tell you, because like you said, it was all grappling. Yeah. There was not this high flying acrobatics that we see now from the likes of uh, Ricochet and uh, some of these other uh, wrestlers in yeah. in the promotions. Uh, but yeah, it, it had me fooled. Yeah, and because all of the holds that they were using, mm-hmm. if they cranked on them, were legitimate holds. Yeah. They could have turned all of those into legitimate holds. They just weren't cranking them. Yeah. So. All those films existed at one time. Almost all of them are lost. Mm-hmm. Most of the films from the 30s, and we're going to look at some of them over the next uh, few shows, so I encourage all the listeners to go and, and watch them yourself. They're almost all available on YouTube, but what you have to understand when you look at these, even the Shicket shoot, these are all severely cut down mm-hmm. film versions. The match, so that match was Shicket went I, almost two hours. What we have on video is 14 minutes. Right. And that's one of the things I want people to realize when they go and watch this. You're getting a much cut down version. Most of the matches back then went two hours. Mm-hmm. And they went two hours for a couple of reasons. One, people were used to legitimate contests that went a long time. So if you all of a sudden start having 20 minute matches, the, the public's going to figure it out. Yeah. It's like you were talking about that Shicket uh, Londis match can fool you because oh, yeah. it, it looks real. Mm-hmm. If they would have immediately gone from Lewis versus Stecker to the Young Bucks versus uh, you, somebody from the eighties, the Rock and Roll Express, oh, or something like okay, that. Yeah. If you would have went to something that was more high flying, more dynamic, more, mm-hmm. everybody would have went, "Oh, this is fake," fake and yeah. would have just killed it. The other reason matches went a long time was because, unfortunately, pro wrestlers made and pro promoters made money two ways. They made it on the gate, yes, and they made it on the gambling. All mm-hmm. the promotions had people working the arena, <laughs> trying to get bets generated, and 
if all the money was on one person to have the first, the quickest fall, the other person was going to get the quickest <laughs> fall. Um, and so sometimes the matches went long because they were just trying to get as many bets going as they could right. before they they went ahead and uh, either had a, fo- a fall or had a couple of falls to end the match. Mm-hmm. But two hours was the norm. Well, nobody was going to sit there and watch a two-hour match on film, so that's why you have these severely cut-down films. I don't know. I've watched a couple of the old WCW uh, two-hour clips on uh, <laughs> on YouTube. So, <laughs> well, and it, it depends on what it is. I found the WWF pay-per-views of the '90s. Mm-hmm. That was not a hard two and a half hour, three hour watch. Right. Yeah. But now these four and a half and five hour shows, who can watch all of that stuff? You know what? And I'll be completely honest with you, Ken. Um, last night. I watched a replay of SummerSlam. I didn't even watch any of the opening matches or anything. I went right to the very end of it, so I didn't. I didn't watch four hours of it because right. I would have been asleep by I, then. I, I'd never watch four hours of it either. Although there right. is a match, I think we should consider watching uh-huh. and bringing Caleb in for on uh, next time because I have not seen this one yet. So okay. I watched Lesnar versus. Cody, mm-hmm. and if you're waiting around for the Jim Londa stuff, it's coming. I promise you, <laughs> it's coming soon. Um, we were actually going to do this later in the review, but since we brought it up, uh, I'll go ahead. I I would not watch a full show like that either. Uh-huh. So I watched the Brock Lesnar Cody match, and as I've said in previous shows, I have never seen Cody as the person to end Roman Reigns' streak. But right. I have to change my opinion about him a little bit. Mm-hmm. He did a outstanding job of making something that I think looks ludicrous. Him beating Brock Lesnar. Yeah. He made it look plausible and he gave one of the best babyface performances. The the babyface getting a just tar beat out of him for the whole match and then at the end comes back against all odds and gets the victory over the... <clears throat> he did an outstanding job, and I can't fault him. But, um, he seems to enjoy being a babyface. Yeah, a lot of people. It looks like it's hard for them to be a babyface. He he yeah. truly seems to enjoy it. Right. I still, I'm not there yet with him being the one to end Roman Reigns' streak. But right. I, I I can see it more than I could have seen it before this match <coughs> with Brock. So maybe WWE did what they were supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, and just one thing, um, I wish I would have had this on tape someplace, had this on record. I saw it coming at the end of the Roman Reigns Jey Uso match. I saw it coming. I knew it was going to happen. Well, I didn't so. even see that at first. So, you know, my grandson is quite tyrannical when it comes to the television oh, yes. set. Mm-hmm. So, after the Brock Lesnar Cody match, he came back upstairs from playing video games with his dad and his uncle Trey. Uh-huh. And so, it's time for him to watch TV. And I can't watch it on my laptop because that makes him uncomfortable when he's laying up there watching his shows. Ah. So, after he went to bed, <laughs> I turned it back on and it just happened to be getting ready to start at Jay Uso and Roman Reigns. Uh-huh. And I got about halfway through the match, and I fell asleep. So I, <laughs> I watched the end of it the next morning, and I did not see it. So you had me beat on that. Okay. I did not see that yeah. that ending coming. Um, I still think they've got a ways to go with this storyline. Oh I yeah. I think they got some interesting things to do it, but it is by far the most interesting storyline. And I think that's in because wrestling. Vince has kept his fingers out of it. 
Well, Vince just got indicted. Yeah, well, yeah, he did. Again. So he he had a uh, career-ending back surgery plop up, and he's uh, yeah, back he's... on the sidelines again. Although he's still the executive chairman, I don't think he's anywhere around the hacienda right now. Right. So, and okay. that's probably a good thing for the wrestling product. Leave, yeah. leave Triple H in charge of it, and I think most fans will be pretty satisfied with what they see. Exactly. So the match I was going to bring up. Um, because, you know, we're going around our elbow to get to our wrist, yeah. is we might want to consider watching that Gunther versus Drew McIntyre match. Oh, okay. Um, and let Caleb see that, and let's see what he thinks about that. Okay. So let's jump into Jim Londis, because we went really far afield there. So Jim Londis <clears throat> was a carnival strongman. He also was supposed to be the person, it, it, depending on what sources you see, because the problems are, and let me say, I'm not sure that I'm ever going to write about Londis. Mm -hmm. um, if I do, it'll probably be focused on his St. Louis, because that's where he became the big star. That's what I was going to talk about oh, today. Oh, anyway. right. Uh -huh. and he, but he was definitely a late bloomer. So he, was, he came to the United States. He, he was born in Greece. And on January 2nd, 1894. Now, some people say he never really knew what his birthday was, but I think he did. I think he knew how old he was. Yeah. But a lot of guys that were older, started later, mm -hmm. would say that because they'd always claim to be younger than they were. Right. And so uh, he, uh, he was born uh, Christopher uh, Theoflu. Christopher, Christos Theoflu. Let me get it right because he uh, wrestled as Christopher Theophilus. But okay. he was born Christos Theoflu in Athens, Greece. At some point, he came to the United States. Whether he ran away and joined the carnival and came here, or his parent, that's all kind of clouded in mystery. And I'll explain p part of the reason why, one, he's got a very shady reputation. Mm -hmm. But some of that comes from a book that's a great place to start for research, but you don't want to just quote it as factual okay. without doing some other research. But we'll right. get into that. So he comes to the United States around the age of 13. And by 1912, he's definitely in the carnivals. And he occasionally wrestles as the Greek painter, Christopher Theophilus. Mm -hmm. And... Sometime in the late teens or early 20s, taking his name after Jack London, he becomes Jim Londos, oh, okay. the, the Golden mm -hmm. Greek. And you can't tell it in this, in that uh, video we watched, because he was 36 years old at the time. Right. He had a fantastic physique. Um, oh, yeah. When he, he was, was younger. Mm -hmm. And a really handsome guy. And... Um, there, his hair has gotten darker, and he looks a little older. Mm -hmm. But when you see him in his 20s, he's the typical blonde hair, Greek Adonis. Ah, gotcha. Um, he used to pose for art classes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he was originally a strong man, and a, a, he was the guy that would catch the acrobats and the acrobat act. No. Oh. Mm -hmm. But he also started learning catch wrestling from the carnival wrestlers, because, you know, they all knew catch, because yeah. in case... The promoters weren't in the uh, business, circus promoters weren't in the business of losing money. So that's exactly. why they learned how to submit people. And, you know, if they got somebody who was a very good shooter, a very good wrestler, mm -hmm. they'd put one of those subs on them they hadn't seen before and hurt them so they wouldn't lose their money in the challenge matches. Right, exactly. So he picks up, a and he's, he's good enough that when Luthez is in his 30s and he is in his early 40s, 
Thez was supposed to wrestle Londis in St. Louis. Oh, okay. And George Tragos, Louis, or Thez's trainer, said, absolutely not. Oh, okay. And the reason he said that was Luthez was not the Luthez he would become in just a few years, mm-hmm. training with Ed Strangler Lewis and uh, Ad Santel in San Francisco. Okay. He was still a, a pretty skilled wrestler, but he was green. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know as many submissions as he would come to learn, you know, put that double arm wrist lock on you. Yeah. And Tragos knew that Londis knew that Thez was going to be a huge star. Uh-huh. And he said, he'll try to hurt you ser- seriously. Oh, okay. So he was a good enough uh, hooker that Tragos didn't want Thez messing around with him. Mm-hmm. And the man who invented the Luthez Press. Was <laughs> <laughs> so around that time he becomes Jim Londis, mm-hmm. uh, John Contos... Uh, Greek businessman in St. Louis starts promoting wrestling, okay. and he's the first, the first that I can find real established time promoter. There was pro wrestling in St. Louis before that. Oh yeah, uh-huh. but it was normally promoted like by the West End Club or the Turnavarian Halls or whatever. Oh okay, and the managers and wrestlers got most of the money most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> but this was the first serious, dedicated local wrestling promotion, and it was started by John Contos. Oh, okay. John Contos had a nephew named Tom Pax. Mm-hmm. And in 1924, Contos decides to leave St. Louis to be Dan Koloff's manager. Dan Koloff is a wrestler from what is now Bulgaria. I forget what it was back then. Okay. And he came to the United States. He starts wrestling professionally. Contos sees that he thinks that he could be a world champion, and so he starts managing Kolov and gives the St. Louis promotion to his nephew, Tom Pax. Okay. Londis had already been in town for a couple years, had already started to become a star in St. Louis. Local businessmen Mm -hmm. offered to set him up with his own gym. Oh. But realize, in 1922, he's already 28 years old. Right. So he's... In wrestling years, he's getting up there. Right, and so in, by the time 1924 comes along, he's 30, and he's just now starting to become a star. Right. Mm-hmm. And over the next six years, outside of the traveling world champion like Ed Strangler-Lewis coming to town, mm-hmm. he is the biggest attraction in St. Louis. Oh, okay. And Tom Pax would be his business partner and promoter for most of his career. So whenever... They would have these falling outs amongst, you know, Jack Curley and Pax. Pax was always aligned with Londis. Okay. And Londis develops his wrestling uh, style and everything here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. By the nineteen, the late nineteen twenties, the early nineteen thirties, he is the biggest star in professional wrestling because he he can wrestle. He looks good. Um, people don't know how really how old he is, <clears throat> and so from 1930 to the early 40s, so he's in his mid 40s. Yeah. By the time his star starts to wane, he is the biggest star in professional wrestling oh. by far. Mm-hmm. In 1934, now one thing to note that is true for sure is Ed Strangler Lewis hated Jim Londis's guts. <laughs> And he, I think Ed Stringer Lewis hated everybody's guts. No, <laughs> no, he had a few people he liked. He liked this. Um, 
he and actually he got along with a lot of the, um, Ray Steele, who was Londis's policeman. Mm-hmm. Lewis liked him. He just oh, couldn't okay. stand Londis because he thought Londis was a fraud mm-hmm. because Londis would never get in the ring with Lewis in a shoot. Yeah, it always had to be a work, and he lost all the matches against Lewis in the twenties. Lewis mm-hmm. had beat him throughout the twenties. Right in the thirties, he becomes this huge star. He's beating everybody. Well, now. They're like, we need to have him, Lewis put him over right, to make him this huge star because everybody knew Lewis beat him like a drum in the 20s. Right. Because Londis was not going to get near Lewis in a shoot. As a matter of fact, one of the more famous stories is before that 1934 match with Lewis and Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. he was supposed to wrestle a contest with Lewis to settle a promotional dispute, but he was not going to get in the ring with Lewis. So Ray Steele got in the ring with Lewis to yeah. settle the promotions. One of Lewis's more famous contests. Well, Lewis always wrestled barefoot. Yeah. And the soles of his feet were like leather because mm-hmm. he he wrestled barefoot. Ray Steele did not. So Ray Steele was not used to those canvas mats. Oh, okay. And that must have hurt Lewis, like a yes, devil. Lewis, Ooh. who liked Steele, mm-hmm. told him. I won't say what he called Londis all the time because <laughs> it has some racial overtones to it uh-huh. as well. But let's just say that he was very uncomplimentary to Londis mm-hmm. and told Steele, he's giving you bad advice. Steele ignored what uh, Lewis said and mm-hmm. said, let's just go on with a match. Well, 30 minutes into the match, because they're bulling each other around, Yeah, Steele's feet are all t- torn up, they're bleeding. Oh, I'm sure. And... Lewis says, Ray, do you just want to end this? And he goes, yeah. He goes, then just punch me. So Steele punches him. Well, the referee who knows this is to settle a promotional war, normally that's automatic DQ at, the, at that time. Yeah. You know, in modern days, you could punch him 100 times. Mm-hmm. People have counted. But he he doesn't squalify because he knows it's a promotional war. So <laughs> Steele punches him again. <laughs> And the referee's still standing there. And Lewis said, for crying out loud, would you de- DQ him so he won't hit me again? Uh, I guess well, the referee was confused as everybody. He was. <laughs> but that's not all. That was so confusing. Everybody's looking in the ring to try to figure out what was going on. And Curly was on one side of... I, he was back in Lewis. Mm-hmm. And so... This Luke Curley is sitting in a wheelchair because he was older and he was having health problems at yeah. this time. I think it was 32 they had that, that contest. So this young wrestler who's aligned with the Londis faction thinks that there was some kind of dirty going on between Ray Steele and Lewis and that Curley paid Steele off to give... So he goes and punches Jack Curley who's sitting in a oh, wheelchair. No. So he's, this guy's invalid. So, <laughs> so here come the New York police... Who did not take kindly to this strapping young wrestler punching this 50-year-old promoter who's sitting in a wheelchair. Oh, man. And they start to uh, uh, take their clubs out. They're going to beat him upside the head Uh when Curly says, stop, stop. He's just confused. He doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) So Curly saved the guy who just punched him sitting in a wheelchair from getting thumped by the New York police. I'm sure he would have got beat severely about oh, the head and shoulders. Yeah, because that was back in the day where, you know, yeah. professionalism was a nightclub. 
or not nightclub, nightstick. Yeah. They probably went to the nightclub after the night sticking. <laughs> so um, Lewis hated Londis with a passion. Uh-huh. And Londis knew it. And Londis knew he stood no chance against Ed Lewis in a shoot. Right. So he made Lewis and Toots Mott, who was Lewis's old training partner, he was his business partner for a while, mm-hmm. and they always remained, remained friends even after the Gold Dust Trio broke up. Oh, yeah. So Mott is the one that approached Lewis about giving the victory to Londis because they had been feuding but now they were back together right in a combination that's when they froze Jack Pfeffer out and he went to the newspapers and mm-hmm. exposed pro wrestling and Lewis agreed to do it but Londis would not get in the ring with them <laughs> until, he was still scared <laughs> until Mont and Lewis put up $50,000 in 1934 man that was a ton of money then <laughs> to promise that he would not shoot on Londis oh wow and then Linus got in the ring with him. And they drew 34,000 fans to... Uh, it wasn't Madison Square Garden. It was the ballpark. 34,000 wouldn't have fit in MSG. It was... They, they wrestled at the ballpark. Um, in New York? Yep. Ebbets Field? It was probably where the Yankees played. Well, uh, it had to be where the Yankees played. Well, I think they played at Ebbets Field. Uh, well, then first. That's, that's what it was. Okay. Because um, it was in Brooklyn. Um, where did the Giants play at? Uh, You're probably right. It probably was Ebbets Field. I'm trying to think. It was at a ballpark because the 34,000 wouldn't have fit in MSG, and they drew 34,000. That was the first 30,000-plus crowd that had been drawn in the United States since that first. And we're looking at the Depression era. Yep. People didn't have a lot of money then. Yep. And he and Londis routinely drew in the 20,000s. Yeah. And when he went back home to Greece, mm-hmm. he drew a couple uh, soccer stadiums with 100,000 fans. Oh, wow. In there. wow. So there'll never, ever be a big a box office star no, uh-uh. as Juan does. It would not be a... Uh, retelling of Londis's career even just the early part without talking about the bad reputation he had for being a con man mm-hmm. and for um, supposedly earlier in his career he threw matches that his fellow countrymen had backed him in mm-hmm. because he had gambled on himself and he basically took all their money yeah they would. however I can't vouch for any of these stories and this is why because they're all from a book called The Fall Guys by Marcus Griffin, mm-hmm. Griffin or Griffith, but it was written in 1937. Mm. And when I read it the first time, I knew that he had a journalism background. Yeah. So I thought, oh, how did this newspaper reporter get this much inside information back in that era? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kayfabe to the you know hundredth degree. Oh yeah, that's where those guys they traveled separately and. So, but I found out reading Luthez's um, autobiography, Hooker. Mm-hmm. Griffin worked in the Buffalo promotional office, okay. and he had a lot of associations with Jack Curley, who was the New York City wrestling promoter. Right. So some of the older stories in his book came directly from Jack Curley. Oh. But you're talking about Curley's talking about things that happened 30 years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was younger, you know, he's an older guy now. Yeah. Memories aren't what they were, and it's very, very difficult anyway in professional wrestling to separate fact from fiction. Right, absolutely. But the stuff with Londis was more contemporary, but the problem uh, I have, number one, 
I've used Griffin as a starting point for my research a mm-hmm. lot of times, mm-hmm. and I have found lots and lots and lots of factual inaccuracies uh-huh. in the book. And I think part of that is because his purpose in writing that book was to make professional wrestling look bad. He had been fired by the Buffalo office. Oh, that's why. He was okay, ticked he off, yeah. and he wanted revenge. But the funny thing is, he didn't release that book until after Jack Curley died. Well, imagine that. <laughs> so so <laughs> that makes me think he was worried that Jack Curley was going to do something if right. he released that book. <laughs> but when after Jack Curley dies, he releases this book, and he had written it. And I mean, he makes fun of pro wrestling in there. He calls them the pachyderms and makes fun of the acting. And he mm-hmm. every salacious story that he's ever heard, he produces in this book. And then you go and you actually do the research, and it's like, well, that's not exactly how it happened. And you, you yeah, know, so. You have to take some of the stuff in that book with a grain of salt, and you just can't talk about the things that he puts in that book as if they're gospel, factual things that happen. You've got to right. kind of look at it. So until I've researched Londis a lot more, and like I said, the only thing I'm really interested in is, is St. Louis stuff in the 20s. Mm-hmm. I don't venture that far out into the 30s because right. my interest is still primarily shooters hookers and contests where, where i can find them right absolutely um i can't say that the the, the portrayal of londis the way he's been portrayed is true i mm-hmm. i wouldn't feel comfortable saying that those stories about him are true until i saw some i'm very comfortable in saying he was afraid of lewis oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm very comfortable in saying lewis hated him based on all the circumstances right but whether he was this horrible person and one of the reasons i say that is because when he died there were lots of obituaries uh, written about him he married a girl from clayton mm-hmm. and they moved to um california that's where he died in 1975 mm-hmm. and but he had lots of friends in st louis he came back to st louis quite a bit and saw his wife's family yeah and he would visit with sam Muchnick yeah. and bob brague and bob brague had stories about him and sam Muchnick uh talked about londos and if this story had been true it would mm-hmm. kind of prove that yeah londos was a bit of a heel but actually Sam Muchnick felt horrible about what happened. So he goes, he was working for Tom Pax. Mm-hmm. That's how Sam Muchnick got his start. He was a newspaper reporter. Uh-huh. His job on the St. Louis Star Times was eliminated because the paper got eliminated not too long yeah. after that. And Tom Pax hired him as his PR guy. That's oh. how he got started in pro wrestling in oh, the, okay. the early 30s. Well, Londos was a big star and he had come to St. Louis. He was dating his wife at the time. Mm hmm. Uh, was still his girlfriend, and they borrowed Sam Muchnick's car to go somewhere because you know he didn't. He flew to St. Louis, right? Yeah, and he wrecked it. Oh, and he told Sam, "Hey, I'm going to leave you." A ch-. He said, "Tell me how much it is." Well, it was six hundred dollars to replace the car. Uh huh. And he said, uh, "No problem. I'll leave a check with you in the office." Well, he went back to California. Yeah. So he goes in there uh, to see Tom Pax. And Tom Pax says, no, there was no check left for you. Yeah. So he gets on the phone and calls uh, Jim Londis in California, mm-hmm. long distance, and tells him what a horrible cheapskate he is. And I always knew you were a cheapskate and skin flint and blah, 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 uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. 
He goes in the office the next day, and there's an envelope in there. He opens it up, there's a check of $600 for La from Londis. Oh, shoot. Londis had dropped it off at the office before he left, but uh -huh. Pax thought it would be funny to tell Muchnick that oh, he had done man. it. <laughs> <laughs> so Muchnick said he called back, and he apologized to Londis. Uh -huh. He goes, and he, he said he accepted, but he didn't talk to me for a while after that. He goes, eventually we became buddies again. I'd say, you know, I miss the days of Sam Mushnick running the running oh, yeah. the St. Louis. Uh, it was a class operation. People took mm -hmm. pro wrestling seriously in St. Louis because oh, yeah. of the way Sam ran it. You would have never seen a match with the Sheik and a Mark Lewin no. in St. Louis. No, uh-uh. So I think that's as good a place anyway to jump into our reviews for this week. So what did you think of... Londis versus Shicket. I, I know you said. <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you what, I was. It was good enough to fool. It was good enough to fool me, and I enjoyed watching a, well, now fixed contest, a, a work, <laughs> <laughs> where the wrestlers actually wrestled. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we you didn't have some guy jumping off the top rope and doing a moonsault or a frog splash. These guys were down there and they were grappling with wrist locks and, you know, body scissors and uh, doing somewhat submission moves, but like you said, they weren't cranking on each other, so nobody got really hurt. But it was good to see an actual wrestling match, because now when people think of wrestling, they think of stuff that you saw back from the early 80s to now, where right. people are, you know, doing it, uh, you know, and that's what really soiled me on wrestling a lot, was um, the era of the ladder matches and the table matches right. and stuff. You know, I like to see a contest. Whether it's fixed or not, if it can fool me, and I enjoyed watching it for 14 minutes, that's what I like to see. And right. so I thought, even though it was a work, I enjoyed the match. And I got nothing against high flying when you work it into the match and it makes sense. What was the best match we saw in the 1980s? Savage Steamboat. Yep. Mm -hmm. And there were some, because you got Randy Savage in there and Steamboat, oh, yeah. who could both move and who could... Mm -hmm. But it wasn't jumping around and doing all... When they did it, it made sense. They were yeah. high-impact moves. Exactly. It wasn't like watching Ricochet, who just does flips in the ring right. for no apparent reason. And you go off of the ring and through a table, yeah, and then you get up. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, that should kill you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, like the time Randy Savage uh, did, uh, did the pile driver. Was it Todd or Rick Morton that he pile drived on the it table? It was Ricky Morton. It it was, Ricky. That was in Memphis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And Ricky Martin, my God, you thought the guy was dead when he did. So it's funny you said that uh -huh. because I know you had no idea that I was going to. So that next match we're going to review uh -huh. is, and I found this out by reading the book by Brian Solomon, uh -huh. uh, Blood and Fire, the mm -hmm. story of uh, wrestling's original Sheik. Yeah. That's why I wanted to watch this match. I had never seen a Sheik match until like the 1990s. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, big-time wrestling was pretty much gone. Well, like, yeah. Um, that that time uh, I was even... It was say, gone before I was watching wrestling. I was going to say, the Northern Territory died, uh, that Detroit... Con yeah, uh, in the uh, mid-70s. Yeah. Late 70s. And so... But I had seen that match that we reviewed. Mm -hmm. I found it on that big-time wrestling show. And I think how it happened, they were talking about the Sheik sold a bunch of his old uh, TV show tapes. Uh-huh. To uh, Ron Martinez, the son of Pedro Martinez, who was the longtime Buffalo promoter, the uh, president of NWF, owner of NWF, yeah, National Wrestling Federation, um, and they put out a bunch of those tapes 
in the 90s. Well, I bought that tape when I was working at Kmart. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that tape had the Savage Poffo versus the... Because it was Savage and Poffo versus the Rock and Roll yeah, in Memphis, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Right, yeah. That was one match where he puts him through the table. Yeah, uh-huh. And the other match was that match with Lewin. Oh, wow. And the Sheik. Because <laughs> I remember Eddie Creech been running on the... the and then the, the oh, Sheik throwing the flyer, fire and getting the, both the fireball. Up. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Creechman, my gosh, I tell you what. What a what I a, had never seen him before. <laughs> what a performer. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he was a heat bang. He was. <laughs> but the, the, so to me, when you work it in and it makes sense, it's yeah. fine. Th uh -huh. That's what I have with the problem with modern wrestling. It's way too fast. Mm -hmm. And nobody... The moves that should kill you, you should stay down. Exactly. If you're standing there on a and I always say, if wrestling thinks that they're entertainment now, and they, they compare themselves to movies and TV shows, mm -hmm. follow the rules of entertainment. Yes, exactly. You know, if Ivor the Boneless is leading his army up there, and somebody shoots him through the midsection with a spear, and he just looks at him and goes... <laughs> and goes into throwing, you know, stuff. And uh, right, yeah, you know, exactly. No, that defies you would be dead. Mm -hmm, exactly. And uh, the, one of the other things I said is this constant winking at the camera and breaking character. And oh, yes. Uh huh. Yeah. How many people would ever come back to watch the Vikings show? I, I always come back to Vikings because it's one of my favorite right. historical dramas of all time. But if Ragnar is breaking into that monastery in the first place. Uh -huh. And Rolo is getting ready to hack down one of the monks. Mm -hmm. And they both stop it. And Rolo puts his arm around the, pe uh, the priest and says, now look, I know this is a pretty intense scene. Right. And you guys are probably getting pretty worked up. But my name's Clive, and this is my buddy Joe. Right. And we're just here putting on a performance. So it, it's going to look horrible, but we're both okay. Right. Nothing to worry about. Exactly. And then they come back <laughs> to the show. <laughs> Who's going to come back for episode two of that? Right. <laughs> so if you say you're entertaining. Well, you might come back to watch uh, Agatha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to follow the rules of entertainment, follow the rules of entertainment. Absolutely. But I like that Londa Shicket match for the same reasons you did. Mm -hmm. It looked like a legitimate wrestling match. I didn't find it boring at all. No, it I've wasn't. Seen a, I've seen a couple Londis matches. I've not found any of them uh, to be boring. There was one he did with Bronco Nagurski. We'll probably do that in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. That was an excellent match, too. Yeah. And I, I was surprised because I knew Bronco Nagurski was a football player. Yeah. I was surprised about how well he had learned to work. Oh, okay. He looked convincing as a wrestler, even though I knew he didn't have a wrestling background. Right. And that's what I said. You know, you, like me, we're fans of the old-time wrestling. Mm -hmm. We like to watch guys wrestle. Yeah. You know, our performers wrestle, if you yes. will. So. so now into this chic <laughs> Mark Lewin match, because... <laughs> <laughs> that that definitely wasn't my type of wrestling. No, not at all. <laughs> and but I, I wanted to watch it because I, I did really enjoy reading that book by Brian Solomon mm -hmm. and he talked about the Sheik's one or two forays into St. Louis. Yeah. And it's a little bit different than the version Larry Matisic had mm -hmm. in his book. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but that was to try to make peace after the bruiser Sheik war. Yeah. But actually the Bruiser Sheik War did both of them. And number one, the biggest problem for both of them mm -hmm. 
is they all aged out. They were all in their 50s. Oh, yeah. And they mm-hmm. never developed new stars. No. And you could only watch uh, The Sheik versus Bobo Brazil, and you can only watch Dick the Bruiser fight Vern Yanya so many times before mm-hmm. it starts to get old. Right. But I had seen that match on a tape, and then when I read in that book about Ron Martinez having these things put in his tapes out, I'm like, it had to be one of their tapes. Yeah. That was, you know, just in a store. and Good time videos or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, and was... I grabbed it and watched it, and the two matches that stood out on there, and there was something really weird in that Sheik match. I, I was wondering if he caught but Okay. Um, was It was Randy Savage and his brother against the Rock and Roll Express, and it was the one where he... Uh, Pile drove Ricky Morton through that table and broke the table. I'd never yeah. seen that before. Uh-huh. I know a lot of people have done it since, but I had yeah. never seen it before he right. did that to Ricky Morton. And Ricky Morton sold it oh, so He was good. a great seller. I mean, he, he was, was a great seller. I tell you, somebody needs to tell him, though, if you've seen him late, he looks like H-E double hockey sticks and <laughs> cut his hair. Because he was... He's, you're not 20 and 30 anymore, <laughs> yeah. guy. You're like in your 50s. We're, we're, we're not saying you got to walk with a cane and gray your hair all up, but, right. you know, let's... Like Magnum TA. Right. Let's not be ridiculous. <laughs> but the the match with the Sheik and Lewin, um, I had not seen fire thrown too much because mm-hmm. we didn't get Memphis. Right. So I hadn't seen a whole lot of Jerry Lawler, who was the other one that threw fire a lot, who he learned throwing fire from the Sheik. Mm-hmm. But when I saw the... The first time I saw the Sheik, I wasn't very impressed but you're looking at the Sheik when he's 49 yeah. almost 50 years old I did look around and I found some stuff of him in the 50s he was a scary dude oh okay if he went through the crowd you'd get out of his way yeah <laughs> he, he, he definitely was a scary guy um, but at this point in time he's 50 years old he looks older actually mm-hmm. um, Lewin is still a muscular freak uh, yeah that guy is in his 80s now, and Kevin Sullivan says he can still squat 400 pounds. My gosh. Yeah, so the guy's a freak. Yeah. But that's that was not my type of match. You said there wasn't one single wrestling hole in it? No. But here's the thing that I found the weirdest part of that match. Do you remember when Lewin went out into the crowd and was supposedly staggering around there? Yeah. Did you see him grab that fan? Yeah, the and, and the, the one in like the uh, almost like a cable knit sweater looking. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I saw that. Grabbed him by the throat. Right. And it looked like when he first staggered out into those chairs, uh huh, that there was a woman on that the side of that guy, and it yeah. looked like he was kind of trying to hold Lewin up so he wouldn't fall on his wife, girlfriend, right. whoever was behind mm-hmm. him. And I don't know if Lewin thought that the guy was trying to wrestle with him or what was going on. He kind of spun him around, was choking yeah. him. Well, it looked like the guy was trying to help them more than right. him. Right. I, was like, I was like, "What the?" Well, I won't say exactly what I was thinking in my mind, but it's like, why is why is he doing this? Why He's is the baby he, face. Why right. is he choking a fan? <laughs> so I thought, and then after he gets done choking a fan, the cops kind of pull him away and everything. Yeah. It doesn't look like they were arresting the guy. It looked like he was trying to, one, help Lewin, and two, protect his wife or girlfriend from right. Lewin falling on him. Mm-hmm. And then he just kind of spins him around and is choking him when the cops separate him. And then he kind of staggers around in the chairs, and the fans are, you know... Oh, getting away from him, yeah. Getting away from him. And I'm like, that's a heel thing. Yeah, exactly. And those guys going out in the chairs, and the fans <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> yeah. And he would become a heel later, but he was supposed to be the baby face here. Yeah. I'm like... Boy, Detroit is rough. I've heard it's rough. <laughs> when you know, the, the baby faces choking the fans. 
<laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. That was, uh, and then uh, I, I, it was just, it was the exchange of a foreign object, and yeah. it punched each other with it a bunch of times. Um, Eddie Creech, you know, kept on trying to interfere in the match. And well, he got up on the apron when Lewin got that pencil. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> ran down the side of the apron in a panic. Uh, and when it was pull, pulling, like doing a tug of war with him, <laughs> she was trying to pull him away and Lewin had his leg. <laughs> it, was, it was entertaining, but it was not my type right. of wrestling match. <laughs> it was entertaining for all the wrong reasons. Exactly. You're going... <laughs> Why is the baby face choking the fan? Right, exactly. And you know that's say, that's rough. <laughs> Usually <laughs> the heels got to fight their way out, not the baby. Face. Although I'll tell you, the Sheik was brilliant as a heel in one respect. He mm-hmm. threw that fire, yeah, and that distracted the fans because Creechman got it and Lewin got it. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and Creechman hit the ground and Lewin hit the ground, and you know everybody came out to tender. Yeah. That was a title match and a loser leave town. So yes. Lewin was the U.S. champion. Lewin lost the title mm-hmm. and had to leave town. That was normally riotous conditions. In oh, fact. yeah. Mm-hmm. And you saw when he threw the fire and it got Creechman and Lewin, it distracted the fans because the fans were like, oh, Creechman's hurt. Yeah. And she grabbed the title, went right out between the yeah, plates and out of there. I'm like, now that's a guy that's a brilliant heel. He's done this before. Yeah. He knows I got to get out of here quick. Well, it was just like that night. Uh, and nobody wanted to beat up Creechman because he just got fire in his face. <laughs> right. That was just like that night that Arn Anderson and Ric Flair turned on Dusty Rhodes when Dusty Rhodes oh, yeah. came, uh, was getting his uh, tail whipped the by fan, the Russians. The fans yeah. almost did not let them out of the cage. And uh, Arn Anderson said, finally, they were able to get the cage door open, mm-hmm. and they just headed for the back. They said they got punched and kicked. Oh, I bet they did. And yeah. their big thing was, don't go down, because if we go down, they're just going to swarm us. You yeah. know, if they're just punching and kicking us as we're running, we can get out of here. Right, yeah. But he said that was the scaredest he ever was. He he thought he could lose his life that night. And Ole had been stabbed before. Oh, yeah, Ole had been. Well, Ole's a, is a... So, you know, he had to be scared. Now, Ole will tell you that he got, he got stabbed because he did the wrong thing and went out after a, fa- a fan had hit him or something. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a fan that hit him. It was an old guy with a knife that got him. And, yeah. Uh, Oli was a hothead, though. He was, and he said he made a big mistake. He yeah. should have never went out into the fans. He got hit, and he got mad, and went after the guy that hit him. And they said, an old man, they said, you had to watch those old men with pocket knives at wrestling yeah. matches. He's the one that got Oli. And there was a nurse that always went to the matches. She always went to the fan fest, too. She died of cancer or COVID, one of the two, two years mm-hmm. ago. And But they knew her. She saved Oli's life. She got and put direct pressure on him until the ambulance came. And they said, had she not done that, he would have died. Oh, wow. Did he nick his femoral artery or? It got something. I don't think it was, I think it was in the guts. Oh, in the guts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, uh, no, but anyway, uh, getting back to the Sheik and Lewin. um, And actually, and I told you uh, that I saw Lewin wrestle about, 10 years after that in a world-class championship wrestling, yeah. I think it was, and he fought Dusty Rhodes, and he just looked like uh, a can of, I don't know what. I mean, he was horrible. I don't think he got in three moves, and Dusty just... And you know, know, gosh, at that point in time, he still looked great. He had a great physique always, but he must have been 50-plus mm-hmm. years old at now, that point I, I, he was just He was just there for that TV. I think, he was, I think he was in his early 50s in the mid-80s. He might have been, yeah. 
Well, like I said, I'm sure he was just there for the TV taping, so Dusty Rose could be on TV and yeah, you know, all of his. But yeah, uh, but Lewin, yeah, that Lewin uh, Sheik match was. Um, I think that's more for an MMA. <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen anything like that in MMA. Guy throwing a pencil in the ring. Right. <laughs> so I guess if we had to say we recommend Londis versus Shikat, but we're not going to recommend the Sheik versus Lewin. Find something else. Yeah. Unless you are a fan uh, of some ECW or something like that, you might appreciate it. Because there was blood. Yeah, there was lots of it, but it was not my cup of no. tea. That's not what we grew up in St. Louis, so... And if you want to see a good match, go watch Harley Race wrestle anybody. Yeah. Or watch Ric Flair wrestle anybody. Yep. And you'll see a, a decent match. Yep. So I think we just beat those matches to death. Mm -hmm. That was some that was some hot <laughs> stuff though. <laughs> so uh, I already know what I'm gonna write my next uh book project on, and it's uh about one of the more famous professional wrestlers, legitimate professional wrestlers of all time. And it's going to be focused on his early career because there's not a whole lot been written about that. It's been more when he became a star in the 20s. And there's a lot of misinformation out there I've seen. Oh, okay. So I want to correct that. So I will probably talk about um, that for the topic for the next podcast. Mm -hmm. And we will um, review an older match. Maybe we'll do Shickett versus O'Mahony. Okay, that'd be good. And then um, we may watch something modern, but watch something modern that could probably uh, translate to any era, and that would be um, Drew McIntyre versus Gunther. Okay. So, you know, the one thing McIntyre does is he does do that. I hate when he does it because a guy that big, I'm always worried he's going to get hurt. Yeah. Does that dive over the top rope and flips oh, and turns around? Yeah, huh? the suicide dive but, or whatever. But they call you know, uh, while Bill Longson would do yeah. that running jump over the top rope and catch it on the way down and stuff, mm -hmm. so there, and I think that that match might hold up in any era. So we might give that a, okay. a look. Well, there's two big men, and they, uh, you know, they they're they're wrestlers, but they're not they're not over. What's the word I'm looking for? They're not overly uh, flippy. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. they they don't they don't use if they use the if they use the top rope it's because it needs to be used. It's Great Muda was one of my favorite wrestlers, but uh -huh. he didn't go out there and just do constant flips and turns. Yeah, and uh -huh. there was a reason for what he was doing. Yeah, especially when he kicked crap out of uh, Von Erich. <laughs> Oh, you're thinking of Kabuki. Oh, Kabuki. Yeah, not Muda, sorry. <laughs> Kabuki got tired of getting stiff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Those guys could take it. Yeah, they could. All right, so I think that's it for this episode. Thank you for uh, joining us in our winging episode because we were winging this one. Uh, we sure were. But we're wingers from way back. Yep. So <laughs> next time, the prodigal son should rejoin us, and we'll talk about some more historic wrestling. Until next time, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.